0: Morning. We're going to be looking, continuing Luke's the series on Luke's gospel. Like Russ said before, um, we'll be in Luke chapter six today. So, if you've got a Bible, if you turn to Luke chapter six, we're going to be in a few minutes going to verse twenty-seven. Um, But as we do each week, trying to keep in in line, working out what's been going on up to this point. Um, We've seen in Luke's gospel so far, Jesus arriving. We've seen the king coming uh, to earth and publicly then demonstrating the the message of the kingdom. He preached the good news of the kingdom and demonstrating that in all sorts of different ways. And as he's been doing that, as we've seen, he's also been gathering followers to himself, Peter and James and John from their fishing, Levi from his tax collecting, Say, so follow me, they come and follow him after that. And as I, uh, we saw three weeks ago when I last spoke, he then gathered, uh, he had all these disciples, all these followers, he gathers 12 of them together to be what he calls the apostles and really fo- founds this new community that's going to be, that's going to grow and has grown today into the Christian church. And here's the deal, with a, with a new community... Uh, A new community needs a whole load of different things, but one thing uh, it needs really is uh, instructions on how to live in that community. Think back to the Old Testament where you've got uh, the community of Israel, slaves in Egypt. Moses comes along, God delivers them from being slaves. They come out of slavery, they're these free people who think, brilliant new community of Israel, what do they need? Well, they need to know how to live in that community. So very shortly after, Mount Sinai, God speaks to Moses, gives the Old Testament law. Why? Because the community needs to know how to live in that community. And actually, straight after calling uh, the 12, we have a very similar thing happening in Luke chapter 6. He calls the 12, they come down from the mountain, then Jesus gathers them together and almost immediately starts teaching them. So in verse 20, it says, looking at his disciples, he said. Here we have uh, in Matthew, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a fuller version. We have a similar account here, Uh, but it's key to know in this, he's talking to his disciples. There are people around, listening in, eavesdropping on what's going on, but he's talking to his disciples. And if you read last week, he starts by laying out these foundational truths about the, the way the world is, blessed are the poor, uh, blessed are you who mourn, puzzle, apparently puzzling uh, things, but Jesus just saying this is how it is and encouraging uh, them to know what life will be like in his new community. And then in verse 27, uh, he gives them their first explicit moral instruction. In fact, this is the first Moral teaching, direct moral teaching that Luke records Jesus giving at all in the Gospel of Luke. And this is what he says in verse 27. But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love. Now, I've stopped there. deliberately. There are two more words that I'm sure you can read on if you've got them. But let's just pause for a second. Right at the start today, I just want to start on that word. What's his first thing that Jesus says? Well, he says, love. That's what he says. The very first thing we're going to go further today But I just want us to linger on that for a moment, because let's be clear on this. This is no coincidence at all that Jesus starts uh, here, that Luke records Jesus starting here. When we think Jesus is setting off his new community, the new community of the church, what's the first thing he's going to tell them to do? Well, it's going to be love. What's going to be the defining characteristic of this new community? Well, it's going to be love. And this isn't a surprise. If you, if you know your New Testament, this is not a surprise at all. On, on different occasions, both Jesus and Paul were asked to sum up the Old Testament law. Well, in the changing culture we live in, guys, what are we going to do with this law? Both of them said exactly the same thing. We sum up the law for you. Do it in one word. Love. That's what it is. It's love. Listen to what J- the Apostle John says in 1 John 4, 7-8 about the importance of love. This is what John says. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty full on right there. What, what's he saying? John's saying this. Not only is love our primary obligation as Christians, it's also the most important outward demonstration that we are Christians. Now, why am I starting like this today? Well, I'm st- I want to be clear what we're talking about today. We are not skirting around the edges of Christian living today. We're not like on some subsection somewhere with some sort of take it or leave it instructions that some Christians might aspire to this sort of stuff. And maybe one day I'll get around to this, but you know, uh, there's other things as well. No, here we have in this passage the primary instructions about the most important thing that should characterize our lives as Christians. According to John, I guess, it's the characteristic that if I show it, it's evidence that I'm a child of God, and if it's not there at all, I'm not saying show it perfectly, I'm saying show it at all. If it's not there at all, though, whatever we say we believe about Jesus, we don't know God. That's what John says, very black and white, very clear. So A bit of a sneaky way to do it. I hope I've got your attention now. It's big. This is a massive uh, thing. So let's see then what the passage has to say. Hopefully having gripped you with that, that kind of a start. Uh, what does this passage say then about this mysterious four-letter word? Let's go from uh, verse 27. We're going to read to verse 36 from the New Living Translation. But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners who will lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great, and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate, just as your father is Compassionate. I don't know about you, there are some passages in the Bible where you kind of, it seems like they go along with common sense, and you know, I know this is wisdom, I know this is from God, but you know, I'm not feeling a reaction coming here, you know. I don't think this is a passage like this. Uh, This passage almost, I hope I'm saying this reverentially, seems to strike against every element of common sense that we would know it is completely counterintuitive in almost everything that's said and so whereas sometimes we're preparing to talk it's like how are we going to respond how do I have to draw a response most I don't know I'm not saying you the other sites obviously are sitting there going yeah well, what, what does this mean for me today well, but today I, I just think I just want to respond as we respond these are the, how I respond to this passage what <laughs> what that's my first question that would be point one second would be how and third will be why. I'm just responding questions just come from my mind and that's our three points today. So there we go. What, how and why. <laughs> so let's start with the what and by what I mean this. What is, what does loving your enemies look like? To paraphrase Jesus, what are you on about in this passage? But what does your loving your enemies look like will probably work. Now I'm sure if if you've been a Christian for any length of time, this is not new to you. If it's new to you, I'm sure you're like, what really? What is going on? You're probably right there. But you will have looked at this before, you'll have seen this before, you'll know about this passage. And um, if you're anything like me, I've often viewed this passage very much as an arm's length for me, as a kind of, uh, it's interesting, but it's not really very relevant to me most of the time in my Christian life. And there are, I think there are two reasons uh, for me distancing and removing myself from this passage. And the first would be that use of this word enemy here love your enemies now I would be aware of this here, and this is a sad thing, but in, uh, for in any group this size, uh, there would be those of us who would know exactly who that would refer to. You, when I say the word enemy in your head will be psh, enemy. I could think of enemies. I have a, an enemy, I guess, would be someone who's hostile to me, uh, not just every now and again, but it's almost part of who they are, kind of my nemesis, Kind of kind of thing. Someone who is who seems to be living to get me against me. Okay? And so, like I said, sadly, uh, some of us will know people uh, like that. Ho- that hostility characterises that relationship. However, others of you are probably searching your head now and going, little faces are coming in your head and going, enemy, not quite, a bit annoying, but not quite an enemy. Uh, it's my mother-in-law. That's not an enemy. It's a different thing altogether. It, you, you could be, <laughs> there's nodding. Wow, I saw, I saw genuine nodding. I won't say who it is. <laughs> but anyway, um, and some of us, we, we wouldn't really, feel. we wouldn't think, well, I don't have any enemies in that way. Now, actually, this passage applies to enemy enemies, like, but it also applies, I think, almost to the opposite group as well. And You might think I'm trying to have my cake and eat it here, but I'll tell you what I mean. I I think this is much broader than just those people who are set against us all the time. I think that we could apply this to our closest friends, this passage. I think, well, that's the opposite of what it says, Johnny. What do you mean? Well, think about this. Surely there are moments when those who are closest to you become like enemies, Maybe it's like just a moment and it passes, but there are moments in your interactions with your best friends, maybe your children, maybe your, your spouse, your family, when, when they, they act in a way that's like of enmity towards you, and I'm sure you would do the same to them. Maybe it's your uh, spouse who every now and then re- just refuses to listen to you, to what you're saying, or, or belittles you in a way you've said before. Please don't do that, and they do it again. Well, they just don't appreciate uh, what you're doing. And at that moment, there's this enmity that springs up, even though you're as close as you can be. Perhaps it's a friend, a close friend, who, who talks about you behind your back. to gets to get a laugh off some friends or pushes a joke a little bit too far at your expense. They thought it was fine. But at you, at that moment, there's an enmity that develops. There's a closeness in relationship. Maybe it's you a child who returns your hard years, uh, or your years of hard work and kindness for ingratitude and spite. Maybe that's it. And that moment, you, it's not like they're my enemy. You're not saying my child is now my enemy. I mean, what are we going to do about this? No, that you love them, but there is that enmity that develops as well. Listen, th- this passage is what to do about those moments as much as what to do about when you treat people who are set against us by the core of who they are. These are not some sideline instructions on how to deal with a very small group of people we may come across every now and again. Now, these are instructions about how we treat everyone at their most difficult moments. This is not about a type of love. This is really about the heart of what love is when it comes, when the rubber hits the road. The second reason I've found this rather hard to relate to in the past is because of the extremity of the examples that Jesus uses. Verse 29, very famous, the most famous verse from here. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Now, on my way home from work on occasion, when I'm daydreaming, I often have thought experiments around this verse, thinking, what does this mean? For example, if I'm cycling along today and I go past a group of people, and as I'm going along, I think this, I don't know if I'm paranoid, they just think this would be fun, and push me in the canal, which is cause I drive along the canal. What should be my response from this passage? What would be the godly response? Would it be okay for me to get out of the canal and beat them to a bloody pulp? Probably not. No, that doesn't seem to be allowed here, okay? Although that would be my feeling. I'm trying to get into character in my daydream. I don't know if you daydream like this. I like doing stuff like this. And th- so then I think, okay, I can't do that. I'm pretty sure this passage wouldn't mean that. However, would it, does it really mean that I should get out of the canal, prop my bike up, sit back on the right front and go, go again. Let's go again. Like, does it mean that? Now, now, probably not. I mean, another one I think of, this is an, another interesting one. Imagine I got mugged, and someone comes me to knife point, took my wallet, okay? Now, let's imagine as they are walking away from me, I realise that in their carelessness, uh, the poor person has forgotten to rummage me for my iPod, which is in my other pocket. Should I go, uh, c- excuse me, come back, iPod as well, you missed it, sorry. Uh, does this passage encourage behaviour like that as well? Well, These are extreme examples and and actually much more could be said about these examples and I'm not going to say a whole lot about them to be honest because this is the point I want to get. With these examples we must not get so taken up with what does it mean to turn the other cheek that we miss the fact they are illustrations of a very clear principle that runs throughout the whole passage. I'm not dodging these things. There's some cultural things going on here about what kind of slap this is, uh, about why someone would demand their coat. There are other things as well. We we don't want to kind of shy away totally from the illustrations. And if you want to study it more, please do. However, if we get so locked into the illustrations, we miss the bigger point. The whole thing goes out the window. Because actually the bigger point is very straightforward here. What the point of this whole passage is, is when people do you evil... Repay them with good. It's the point. Surely the point of the passage. But what should I do if I get pushed in the cloud? Well, no, no, leave that. Let's, let's, let's leave that for me. Let's get the, the principle sorted first. Then we'll see how that works out in our lives. Now, I'll say that again. The point of this passage is when people do you evil, repay them with good. Now, this has two elements to it. First, there is a passive element. There is a don't take revenge element. So verse 29 have we seen, if someone slaps you on one cheek, do not punch them back in the nose. It's it's not taking revenge. However, that's only the beginning. There is a much more uh, testing, positive command as well. Verse 35 is one way of saying it. Love your enemies. Don't hit them in the face. No, that's not what it says. It says, love your enemies. Do good to them. Jesus is saying this here. He's saying, when we are wronged, we should not act to vindicate our human rights and pay people back for what they've done to us, but instead, we should aim in our actions to do good to the person who's harming us as I said, we could say much more about those examples and we could pull more out of this passage. I don't know about you, <laughs> that's enough for me for the moment, okay? Let, let's, let's see if we can get there. If we can get there, I'm happy, okay? Because that's massive. It's a radical thing, not just to forgive, but to give is something that says in the passage after. So the, the instantly, the second question is now springing into my mind, uh, which is how? How on earth could I possibly live my life like this? And that question arises because, and it implies really, that this is entirely unrealistic and completely impossible, Jesus, what you're asking us to do here. Now, I imagine you're expecting me at this point to say, well, of course it's not unrealistic and impossible. No, no, Jesus is giving us this command. He tells us how to do it, and this is how we're going to do it. And to a degree, in a couple of minutes, I'm going to go down somewhere near that line. But I do want us to hold this thought for a minute. Is this impossible? Is Jesus asking something that we cannot do? Is it impossible? Yes, it's impossible. For human beings working in their own strength and their moral fortitude, this is an impossible command, completely unrealistic. I think when difficult passages like this arise, our first temptation is to water them down. And I couldn't mean that. It must just be, put an idea. We'll try to get as close as we can. Let's water it down. Probably this line is good enough. It's all kind of idealistic. It's a m- metaphor probably in here somewhere. No, no, we shouldn't see passages like this. Like that. We should see them as very real standards of God, behavior that he expects from the pinnacle of his creation, who he made in his image. Listen, we are going to be judged one day aligning to passages like this. It's clear. Jesus said it. This is the command of God for us. You might think, but you said it's impossible. That's a bit of a harsh thing. Well, why is this impossible? The only reason this is impossible for us is because through our sin, we have become so hardened to other people and so corrupted and so inward looking that these little things that are done to us all over become the only way we can relate to other people. That's not a natural thing for people made in God's image. No, it's our sin. Our sins, not just things we do, it corrupts us and we've all come to that place to one degree or another where we are corrupted and the way we relate to others is primarily, Governor, what can you give me? I want something from you. Now, I don't know about you, I I imagine there's people before me who people have done awful things to but sometimes it's even just the little things. Someone does this, I can't relate to this person because I did this. When you think about it, it's not really a big deal on the scale of the world. It's, it's not a massive thing, but now suddenly you cannot look past it because they did it to me. I mean, my other friends do that to people all the time, but they did it to me. It's the corruption of sin in our lives. Is Jesus for real in this passage? Yes. Does he expect us to fulfill this passage? Yes, he does. Can we do it on our own? No way we can do it on our own. And therefore, the first application of this passage must be, and probably the most important one actually, is to throw ourselves on the mercy of God. That's what we should do. Some people you might hear be not a Christian today and come along. Well, I want you to know something about the Bible and about God. You might be coming thinking, well, what do I need to do to get in? Like maybe thinking of afterlife. How do I get a good afterlife? How can I know God now? What's the bar? What's the standard? I'll well, tell you what, the bar is incredibly high. Very, very high. And it's not unfair because we should be able to meet God's standard. And we can't because of the corruption caused to us by the sins we've committed. The only way that we can meet this standard is to come to God on our knees, accept our weakness, accept his forgiveness through what he did on the cross and the power to change of his Holy Spirit. It's not saying, wash your hands, I'm not going to bother with this anymore. God is up to you. It's saying, God, I need you to change me. That's what becoming a Christian is. Falling on your knees before God and saying, I am weak, you are strong, I need you, God. You're a Christian here, which I'm sure is the majority. You might be thinking, yeah, that's that's right, that's what being a Christian is. But do you know that that's not doesn't change the minute you've been a Christian for a bit, doesn't that? that's how I got in. Now we work like this. No, no, that's how we always operate as Christians. I how you're doing. When he talks, Jonathan talked last week, those are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Again, there is metaphor there, but it's, it's a very clear metaphor. I'm thirsty, I'm in the desert. If I don't get a drink, I'm going to die. That's how we live our Christian lives. G- Jesus, if you don't send me your spirit, I am going to not be able to continue with this. I'm ask, how are you doing? Christians here, this regard, throwing yourselves on the mercy of God. John said, with this passage, if love does not come out of us, is evidence we do not know God. I look at myself, and I think, well, God, I'm in an awful situation here. How, how, does this, how does this work? Well, what do I do? What Do I, do I beat myself up? No, I say, God, you saved me through your son. You promised me your spirit, and you said that love is a badge of your children. We're going to come to this in a minute. So therefore, I need you to act in me. I can't summon it up. You can do it, and I need you to do it. And the power comes from God on his terms. It's through his Son for forgiveness and through his Holy Spirit for living that out. And actually, as we look in this passage, the how to's in this passage, because there are some, spell this out. They lead us to rely on God, not on our own moral determination. So, firstly, please lock that in your head dependence on god let let this passage throw you on god for your sanctification because if if you don't you're stuck it's all about him it always has been it always will be but verse 36 i think gives us a mirror into kind of breaking this down a little bit and giving us some more help with this verse 36 says this last verse of this little passage you must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate How do we fulfill these seemingly impossible instructions? We do it through our position as sons of a compassionate father. Becoming a Christian is becoming a child of God. It's being adopted into God's family. And it says here about our father, this new family. If you're a Christian, you've been adopted into God's family. And this is about your father. He is merciful. Look at what it says in the verse before, just before. He is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. Might be thinking different things. How's God kind to the unthankful and the wicked? Uh, I think one verse for me sums this up best, and that's in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Paul writes this, and he uses some similar images from our passage here, which helps us. When we were God's enemies, we were justified, that means made right with God, through the death of his Son. Father God loves his enemies. Do you know that about your God? You know about your father. He loves his enemies. And who were his enemies? Well, according to Romans 5, verse 10, we were his enemies. One of the crucial steps necessary for us to love our enemies must be to recognize the fact that we were God's enemies, yet he still loved us. Human beings are not, by nature, distant acquaintances of God. We're not would-be friends who he's not quite got around to getting to know yet. No, we are by nature enemies, every one of us. And that means two things. That means we are against God by our nature. We don't like what he stands for. We don't like what he tells us to do, basically because we want to run our own lives, and therefore he is our enemy. Yet at the same time, on the opposite way around, It also means that God is against us in our natural state. He doesn't like what we've become and he stands in opposition to us as naturally speaking as human beings. Now wherever you are here today, whether you're a Christian or not, that's difficult, that's a hard truth and it is a hard truth. I mean I'm sure that we would prefer it to have been different, it would have been great if we weren't. I know it's hard for many people. They'd say it can't be the fact that God couldn't be against us because God's loving. God is love. It kind of goes back to this passage, kind of. But let's think about it for a second. This fact that we were enemies of God and he sent his son for us does not lessen God's love, it magnifies God's love. However difficult this phrase must be, it doesn't dilute the love of God. You see, we were really God's enemies. But he really loved us. And what did his love mean? Did it, was it a fuzzy feeling inside? Did he, did he tut at angels who spoke ill of his creation? Oh, you can't say things like that. Did he do that? No, he didn't. What did he do? He sent his own son to die for us. He gave his very best for us. He did the most difficult thing he could for us. He watched his son die for his enemies. Listen, If you see God's love for you as a sort of niceness, kind of obligation that he kind of had because we're not that bad after all, you will never be able to fulfill Jesus' instructions in this passage. God's love didn't come to you easily. It was not a natural outworking of his fondness for you. It was a massive sacrifice for one who was utterly opposed to him and who in many ways, mysteriously, he still stood in opposition to even when he sent his son. Our father loves his enemies. He's proved it on the cross of Jesus. It is the defining characteristic of the family of God. Some families are huggy, aren't they? It's like touchy-feely family. Some families do handshakes. What does the family of God do? They love their enemies because they follow the characteristic of the head of that family. We've got to understand that as a foundation or we're going to really struggle to love our enemies if we don't see that as what God did. We've got to understand the grace that's been shown to us, enemies of God. And I'd encourage you, even if now, because what we're saying, there are wrongs that have been committed against you that are in your head. Go, Can I really forgive that? Can I really give good when all I've got is that? Could suddenly put them next to the wrongs that we did to the Father when we turned against the pure and righteous God of heaven? Because he loves his enemies, and he's our father, and he expects us to carry on the family tradition. But actually, there's more here about being in God's family and love than we've seen so far. You see, I I said a few minutes ago that when we become a Christian, we're adopted into God's family. Now, if, if, and this may be the case for some of you here, if you were adopted into a family as a child you would be very much affected by the new relationships in that family, and it's very likely you would gain family traits as a result of that. You have interaction with your new family, and you see how your parents treat you, and if particularly they've been really good adopted parents, you'd probably emulate them in some way. However, if you had natural brothers and sisters, like brothers and sisters who were natural in that family, they would have another motivation to family traits, and it wouldn't just be external, kind of, I want to follow your example, I like what you're doing here in their very being, in their DNA, in their genetic makeup, actually, they would have a a kind of pull towards the family uh, traits in that family, whatever they uh, may be. Now, being adopted into God's family is a fuller adoption than a natural adoption. Because, yes, we get access to the Father when we're adopted into God's family and we can hear his voice and we can speak to him and we can see truths about him. But at exactly the same time, we also take on the DNA of our father. One image that's used is adoption. Another is being born again. And anyone who's become a Christian here, you were adopted, but also you were reborn as a natural child of the father. This is really good. This is really good for us. So I hope you take hope in this. Therefore, when we see something in the father in the Bible, we can't apply everything from the father, some things he has that are just his. But when we see something in the Father that we can and encourage to emulate into it, there's a very real sense in which there is an internal pull now in us to replicate that in us. That's encouraging. That's that's good news. That's exciting. Romans chapter 8, it says this, that those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And it's this Spirit that does this internal pulling. There is not just, as a Christian, there is not just an external pull on you from the Bible and seeing truth. Okay, I can see this there, so I've got a duty now to do it. There's not just that external pull. In every child of God, there is a leading, there is a prompting, there is a pulling from the Holy Spirit to emulate the characteristics of the family of God. And what's the first thing that the Holy Spirit pulls out of us? Galatians five twenty two. But the fruit of the Spirit is number one. Love. What's the, holy, the fruit of the Spirit? is love. Number one. It's not an accident. Like I said before, love's at number one. Love is not just the first thing we're asked to do. It's the first thing the Holy Spirit brings out in us. I hope you see this. this is, some of this stuff's heavy today, but this verse, you must be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. That's not a fist on the table. You must. That's a massive encouragement. You must be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. It's possible for all of those who can call God our Father. In fact, not just possible, it's, it's, it's the most natural route for our lives to take in many ways. Are you in God's family today? Is God your Father today? If not, the offer's on the table, the adoption papers are signed. All you need to do is believe and trust in Jesus because those who believe in Jesus, who, who receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. That's what it says in John 1. There's still one more question that we've got to ask and that is this final one. With all this said, well, what, how, but why? Really, why? This is a difficult thing. Why should I bother going out of my way for this sort of thing? And it says that the answer is in verse 35, actually. 30, verse 35 says this. Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. So why should we do it? Well, the first thing we see here is there's a reward. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, in the Gospels, Jesus then talks about these rewards, someone's treasures in heaven and things like that. And often it's slightly unclear what he means. And you think, well, what does he mean? This? Is there really a big stash of gold waiting for me as long as I... Keep my nose clean up there in heaven. Um, well, actually, you could postulate all that, all that you want. I believe there's treasures and rewards in heaven, but that's a different passage. In this passage, he makes it very clear what the reward is. If you if you look at the NLT, fudges it a little bit. Then your reward from heaven will be great. Well, actually, the last bit should be translated more accurately. And you will be sons of the Most High. Your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. What's the reward? I'll put this to you. What's the reward? In that sentence, if putting it like that, what does it sound like the reward is? Being sons. The reward is being sons. If you do this, you will be a son. Cause, effect. I'm hoping I see some confused faces there. That sounds a little bit different to what we've just had a minute ago. I might think, oh, wait a minute. I thought we were already sons. It wasn't sons with repentance and faith? Not to do with how we live our life. We, we've been there, Johnny. We've been here. This sounds a bit confusing. I think I'll stick with the NLT if that's okay. <laughs> well, let's think about this a minute or two because I don't think this is as, as confusing. It's confusing on the surface. I don't think we can, we're stuck on this one. I think we can get past it. Let's imagine I'm at the passport control going on holiday with my family, and the person behind the desk says, um, Hope is your daughter, isn't she, Mr. Miller? And they would be absolutely correct. Hope Mellor is my daughter. And I would assume that the question would be a question about status. Does she share your surname? Are there legal papers showing that she is in your family? It's a status question. She is a bona bona fide member of the Mellor family. That's what they're getting at with that sort of uh, statement. So that's a question about... uh, child being a child what about another question let's imagine someone's around our house for dinner and hope was pulling faces at her brother uh being generally silly and showing off lots and then someone was to say to me hope's your daughter isn't she it's a completely different thing altogether. I think they wouldn't be talking about status. What they would be saying, I think some of you have got, they're talking about character. What they'd mean is, she's just like you. Now, my, my tone manners are immaculate, obviously, but uh, somewhere in there, there was probably an example. Um, <laughs> but she's saying, she's, becoming like you. she's acting a bit like you do, Johnny. She's becoming a bit of a chip off the old block. I think this is what Jesus means here. If you're a Christian here and you're God's child, brought into his family, having a changed nature even, and making it natural almost in some ways to emulate your father, that has absolutely nothing to do with you being a loving person, a kind person, an honest person, anything. To get into the family, it's by the grace of God through faith in Jesus alone. We must stand on that. We mustn't ever give ground on that. However, at the same time, we can live out the family traits more or less in our lives. We can be children merely in status. Like at a passport office. Or we can be children in such a way that people say to us, you're a child of the father, aren't you? You're a child of the father. We can be chips off the old block, or we can be just, I'm in that family. I'm a bit embarrassed. I don't want to be like them. I'm in that family. Like a teenager who doesn't really want to get on with their, their parents so much. What this is saying here is if we love our enemies... We can be sons in such a way that people will notice we are like our Father. What is on offer here? What's the reason we should go out of our way to love our enemies? Because if we love our enemies, we'll become chips off the old block. People will say, you're the Father's child, aren't you? Wow. What a reward. If that reward's not hitting you, you think, oh, come on, I want some bags of gold in heaven as well, please. Just think about this. In about... 10 minutes you're going to start singing here I know that's not prophetic <laughs> so I'm assuming that's going to happen unless ad has got some experimental worship thing up his sleeve um you'll know, start singing what, what will happen is this I, I know how this will go is we'll focus on God and some of you are going to wave your hands in the air like like nutters like this oh people say why why are you doing that and why are you doing it you're doing it because this I see something in you God I see something in your characteristics and your character that blows me away I see something about your love and your wisdom and, and your kindness and your grace and I, it's so amazing I'm going to look silly and go like that because of it and I'm going to sing about it and all the, every day I'll come to you and I'll worship you. I'm not just, I'm not just commenting, I'm worshipping you for it because your characteristics are impressive. Well hear this as you do that. Then God turns around and says to you "Is I'll share them with you. You can become like me. So people say, you're, you're a child. Wow. Is that not the best reward? I believe there's rewards in heaven. of different. I don't know what they, they'll be fully. I can't think of a better reward than that. But people say, you look like your father. You're living out the family traits. That's what's on offer here. That's why we should love our enemies. Because as we do so, we become more like our father. So let's conclude. Let's wrap this up. And as I do this, I want to pull all these strands together to give us some very practical help now as we finish on how we can fulfill Jesus' instructions here. Now I don't want you, like I said before, I don't want you to lose the key point. I still think it's the key point. We can only do this stuff through God working in us, through revealing his grace to us and giving us his spirit to make us more and more like him. However, the whole idea of what the Bible talks about is sanctification. we becoming more and more holy or more and more like Jesus. The Spirit is primary in that, yet we are co-workers in that. That's what it talks about. So if we're co-workers with the Spirit, what is our responsibility then, apart from just on our knees going, God, I need help? If you do that all day long, you're not going to be very loving because you never see anyone else. You'll just be like facing the rug or whatever it will be. Well, let's zoom out of the detail of the passage as we finish and ask one final question. It's a tricky one to pull on you just as we finish, but I'll ask it anyway. Is the love in this passage, and please go by, you can just survey over it. Is the love in this passage more about actions or is it more about feelings? Is it more about actions or is it more about feelings? Now, I'm not going to wait for a response there, but some people do see love purely in terms of feelings, don't they? You you kind of, you feel something. I might not act lovingly, but I love you, although I'm cheating on you and I'm, doing this, I'm doing this. That's the kind of love in sick rom-coms. It's like, I'm doing this, but I still love you. It's just a feeling that you have towards other people. And others see love purely as an action. I don't have to feel a certain way, I just do so. And what does this passage say? Surely, as we go through this passage, the focus is very clearly on one side. It's on action. It's all about action. The, the, there are specific actions throughout the passage. But look at how many times the word do appears in this passage, an action word. Verse 27, Do good to those who hate you. Verse 31, do to others as you would like them to do to you. Verse 33, if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Verse 35, love your enemies, do good to them. Most of this passage is concerned with our actions, acting lovingly. Now, at the same time, we know that's not all love is. We know there's more to love than just actions. Again, I'll give give you verse 1, Corinthians 13, verse 3. says this, If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Can you think of anything more, a more loving action than giving everything you own to the poor? Paul's saying, you could do all that but not have love. So there must be something else to love. It's not just acting. There's feelings. There's some backbone and and something internal to this as well. And So this is again, right at the end, what what are we doing here? Well, let's go back to the passage. Is that anywhere in this passage? We've got these do's, do, 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 do. But then at the end, the do's change and the new word replaces do. It's a new word called be, from do to be. And it crops up in verse 35 and 36. Verse 35, more literal translations as I've said. You will be sons of the Most High. Verse 36, you must be compassionate. We're there, we're we're pretty much done. I'll just explain what I mean, the difference this, this, and then I'll hand over to Russ. What's the difference then between doing loving things and being a loving person? An uncaring person might do loving things for all sorts of motives, financial gain, to look good, duty. But a loving person does loving things out of who they are. It's instinctive, it's automatic, it's natural. It comes from a feeling of love that you act accordingly to do. Now, I want to be clear with us. That is the destination for us as Christians. That's what God wants us. That is love in its truest and fullest form. He says, be merciful as your Father is merciful. That's where we're heading. However, how do we get there if we don't have the feelings already? Jesus is saying this. What's the way to that destination? Well, we do loving things, even if we don't feel like doing them. Jesus here is rubbing out an excuse that we could use to get rid of this passage. The excuse would be, I don't feel very loving towards that person, so therefore I don't want to be dishonest. He's rubbing it out for us. He's saying, you don't feel very loving? Irrelevant. Doesn't matter do good to those who hate you. Do you feel anger and bitterness towards someone now? What should you do? Act kindly towards them. Is that all love is? No, that's not all love is, but that's how we get to being loving people. Actually, this area we looked at, so loving our enemies surely has got to be the best training ground there can be working with the Spirit, Sometimes through gritted teeth, because let's be realistic. It's often someone's enemy of you. You feel, oh, flowers and roses. I love you. You're beautiful. I don't feel that. No, it's a training ground. I show love. And then five, ten years later, you think, well, I'm a more loving person than I was before. Let's please take Jesus' instructions seriously here. Let's do good to those who hate us, who are different from us, who misunderstand us, who offend us. And we'll do it as a son of the Father full of the Holy Spirit, then as you do those things, the Spirit works in us to make us those kind of people who people could say of us, you're God's son, aren't you? You're God's daughter, aren't you?